0: Make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go because we're about to get started with today's message. Uh, This morning, Revelation chapter 17, uh, the woman and the scarlet beast. If you haven't been with us for the book of Revelation, um, there is a series of visions that the Apostle John is getting about what God is going to do. Right, The vision, Jesus says, he tells him to write down what was, what is, and what is coming, what will be. Okay, and So John is receiving these series of visions, dreams, understandings of uh, what God is going to do in the end times. Now, last night I went to bed and I apparently had too much water because all of my dreams, every single one I had, I was fine in a bathroom. Um, And so that's not what John has going on here. We're not just talking about a regular set of dreams that he has at night, uh, but these are special, unique visions that God gives him to understand what's going on. Now, we're nearing the end of this book, and this chapter here, we're gonna look at the woman and the scarlet beast. Let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, the, The woman is going to represent a religious system, the religious system that has been operating since the Tower of Babel, Okay, a false religious system that leads people away from trusting God and into trusting in themselves. Okay, that's the false religious system that the woman represents. In the end times, there's two major characters Along with Satan, sort of the unholy trinity, Uh, you have Satan himself, the false prophet, who the woman is sort of representing here, and then the Antichrist, which is going to be represented by the scarlet beast. What this chapter is going to explain to us is how God is actually going to pit a false religious system, uh, the woman, against a political world leader, the scarlet beast, and he's actually going to use. Uh, These two things that are sort of supposed to be teaming up to actually destroy each other and then war against him. That is God's plan in the end times, that there's a false religious system, there's a singular political leader that all of the world is turning to, and God is actually going to take those two systems and pit them against each other and then lead them into battle against him. Okay, and so that's what this chapter is explaining. Uh, chapter sixteen was the seven bowls of wrath, and we've seen seven over and over again within the book of Revelation, representing God's complete judgment. Um, it's also kind of helpful to remember that the book of Revelation is not necessarily sequential or chronological. Um, the woman and the scarlet beast can fit into the theme of uh, the the seven bowls, and so don't necessarily read it in a sense of these things are happening in a sequential order. Sometimes you're getting explanation that. Is is furthering what's already been talked about. And this is one of those chapters, okay? So that's what we're going to look at. I I do encourage you to follow along on your handout. I have the text on your handout. um, And uh, this is one of those texts that uh, one of the commentators said, no text in the Bible confused him more than this one. So this is is a confusing text to read. And what I want to do with the handout is kind of help you see who are the characters within this chapter uh, what do they represent and how is God going to cause them to interact with each other? Okay, so that's kind of my goal for you to see this chapter clearly. But ultimately, what this chapter leads us to question is, how does God feel about false religion? How does God feel? How does, how does he interact with a wrong understanding of how to have a relationship with him? And then the other thing it makes us do is it makes us say, whose side am I on? Um, There's really two sides to choose here. Whose side am I on? Um, and, And then it also would cause us as believers to inspect our lives and say, is there any area where this false religious system has made its way into the way that I think about God and live my life? Okay, so that's kind of what this chapter is going to make us do. Let me pray and then I'll read it. Father, this morning we recognize that you are with us. Your spirit is with us at all times. Uh, We set apart this time right now um, as a time that we turn to your word to understand who you are, what you're doing within our lives and within the course of history. What is your plan for the end of history? Um, How would you have me interact with you now? How would you cause me to uh, grow closer to you? What things should I make sure I steer away from so that I don't find myself in in opposition to you? And so we do pray, Spirit, that you would enlighten us in all these areas. Help us to understand you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so go ahead and look at uh, verse 1 with me. I'll read through and give you a little bit of commentary and then explain it. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. So one of the angels grabs John and says, I'm going to show you something new here. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. Now, within the scriptures, when you see sexual immorality, it's often used as... um, as an idiom, an expression of idolatry, of worshiping something other than God. And actually, within the scriptures, when you see idolatry, worshiping something other than God, you almost always see sexual immorality team up with it, okay? So when we take our eyes off of God and worship the creation, almost always some form of sexual perversion and immorality is joined to that. Okay, And so that's what he's drawing out here is that there's a religious system in this woman that is drawing the waters, the people of the world, away from worshiping God and into idolatry um, and sensual lifestyles. Verse 3, then he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, an isolated place. That's where Jesus would go to meet with the Father. Uh, So he's kind of explaining that he's getting a unique view of things directly from God. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast... That was covered with blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand, filled with everything detestable, with the impurities of her prostitution. Uh, detestable is uh, the word abomination. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24 to describe the abomination of desolation. The idea behind something being detestable or an abomination is that when God sees it, it actually churns his stomach. It makes him sick to his stomach to see people worship idols and practice lifestyles that uh, harm each other, that actually causes God's stomach to turn in a, in a negative way impurities that's things which are unclean and so she is the source this religious system is the source of that which is an abomination stomach turning to God that which is impure or unclean and causes humanity to be uh, unrighteous before God a false religious system is the source of these things verse 5 on her forehead was written a name a mystery Babylon the great the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth when I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And so John is given this vision; he's able to see the woman, the false religious system, the scarlet beast representing the uh, the antichrist, the seven heads being rulers, kings on the earth, seven ten horns being ten more powerful rulers on the earth. And so he sees these, and he sees that the religious system uh, that is against God actually becomes. Uh, intoxicated, drunk by, um, motivated by the, the death of God's people. Um, they, they work against God's people. And it says when he sees this, he was greatly astonished, which means to be surprised or amazed. It's to witness something that you didn't quite see it coming. Like maybe you had an idea of what was going to happen, but when it actually happens, you go, wow, that was kind of a shock and a twist. I didn't, I didn't see coming. The angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. That word mystery within the scriptures, when you hear the word mystery, it's something that has been wondered about, pondered, considered, but never fully known until right now. John is saying right now, God is going to make it clear why people pursue idols and live lives that are against God. He's going to say, this is why it happens. This is why there is a system on the earth that fights against God's people and actually is intoxicated, loves the idea of killing his witnesses and fighting against God. He says, I'm going to explain it. Verse eight, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. If that sentence is clear to you, Then you probably understand the book of Revelation. I'll explain it in a minute. Those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind that has wisdom or cleverness and insight. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman was seated. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and one has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. This is talking about the sequence of events and rulers during the end times. The beast that was and is not and is itself an eighth king but belongs to the seven is going to destruction. So the Antichrist is going to take a position of supreme rulership within these world leaders and then he's actually going to go to destruction. That word destruction is actually the same word that's used of Satan in Revelation 9.11. Okay, so he's going to go to a place of destruction. Verse 12, the 10 horns you saw are the 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but will receive authority, which is ruling or official power, as kings with the beast for one hour, representing a short period of time. These have one purpose or one decree or decision that they're going to make. They will give power and authority to the beast. These will make war or be hostile against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. So what's he saying? He's saying that what has been revealed to him is that during the end times, there's going to be seven powerful political leaders that are going to come in a sequence, and then there'll be ten more powerful political leaders who will come together, kind of all at one point in time. And the decision that they make is instead of like the nations do now, where they fight for their own authority and their own boundaries and those types of things, all the nations will come together and say, We should give all of our power and authority to this one political leader, the Antichrist. We should all follow him and give him all the power he has all the right ideas. And and this religious system that the false prophet has is lifting him up. Let's all join in giving him all of the power. And the purpose for that is that they will war against Jesus. They will actually fight against his people and against his church. Now, within the book of Revelation, you can see that some of these things are cyclical. They've happened throughout church history, but they have not seen the consummation, the fulfillment that the book of Revelation references. There's never been one supreme world leader that all the nations turned their power over to. That's something that's future. And they war against those who are called, chosen, and faithful. Verse 15, he also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. The ten horns you saw and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. So this is where it's drawn out that the political system that's upheld by this religious system Uh, is actually going to destroy the religious system. God's going to pit these groups of people that are supposed to be a team against each other. They'll crumble and fall apart. And verse 17 says, For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his plan by having one purpose, to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. This is God's plan. That he's going to turn humanity over to their desires, and their desires will lead to the destruction of one another. And at that point in time, God will come and judge it once and for all. That said, if God gives you over to your desires, that's a very dangerous place to be. Verse 18, and the woman you saw is the great city that has royal power over the kings of the earth. So that's a reference to Babylon. So continue to follow along with me on your handout. Now, I want to explain each character a little bit more. So the woman, or Babylon the Great, this is a religious system of Babylon started in Genesis 10 at the Tower of Babel. So the people come together in Genesis 10 and they build a a ziggurat, uh, this large religious building. And the idea behind this religious building was that you and I, as human beings, we're going to do something to earn our way to God. He will then come to us. And because we performed this religious, religious act, he will bless us. And that's where all false religion begins. You and I work real hard towards God, do something so that he owes us, and then he must bless us because we did our part. The emphasis is on humanity saving themselves and earning something from God. Now that's all false religion. You and I work our way to God, earn something, and he owes us. True religion is we are broken and sinful and utterly apart from God. There's nothing that we could do to save ourselves but God, in his love and mercy, has come to us to save us. Now, anything that we do is from a position of gratitude towards him. All actions that we have in our lives are motivated by thankfulness and gratitude for what he has done for us and secured for us who he's made us. False religion says, earn it and God will owe you. True religion says, there's no way you could. God has blessed you anyway. Okay, And so that's, that, that false religion, this system has been renamed and duplicated across the world time and again. It even makes its way into the church. It drives all false religions to do three things. Dismiss God's word, disrupt his people, and divide his church. So the first thing that you have to do to get to a position where you believe that the way to be right with God is to earn our way there is you have to dismiss God's word because you won't find it. You will find time and again that we are saved by grace that it is all of grace that it is all of god's gift it is all of what he does on our behalf he moves towards us we love him because he first loved us salvation finds its source in him not in us so we have to dismiss god's word maybe not all of it but a, but certainly the parts i don't like maybe not all of it but definitely the parts that clash with our culture too much you have to dismiss God's word. And the next thing is to disrupt God's people. False religious systems will take those who are truly seeking after Jesus and his kingdom and try to disrupt that. Let's shut down the church. Let's close its doors. Let's make it so it's hard to worship. Let's make it so it's hard to get the word of God. There are places in the, in the world right now, missionaries we support in Afghanistan, they don't dare keep their Bible even on their phone. They have a chip that they put in their phone, read it for a while for the, to have the Bible, and then pull it out and hide it because if they get caught with the Bible, they're in a lot of trouble. They can't worship freely like this. This is something that happens around the world. And that's what false religious systems that uphold a government entity do. They try to disrupt God's people and they try to divide his church. So you and I can meet freely, but one of the things that exists within our nation is the religion of relativism, the religion of subjective truth, the religion of materialism, the religion of sensuality. Like we don't actually call them religions, but they are. And the people that we know and the people that we associate with and do business with and work with, they worship at these temples. But that can make its way into the church and divide us. And so you find the church divided over things that are so clear within the scriptures. What is truth? Where do we go to find it? We go to God. Is there absolute truth? You bet there is. God's revealed it to us. How can we know it? We go to his word. This this isn't complicated stuff, but truth is subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. It's up to you. And we live in the religion of relativism. But that doesn't mesh with the Bible. We live in the re- in the religion of sensuality that says that you can do whatever you want sexually without consequences. Be- do your thing in that realm. Well, what the scriptures teach, the truth that exists within that, is that sexuality, immoral sexuality, is always an indication that you're not worshiping God. If you have repetitions of sexual immorality in your life, you have an idol that needs to be dealt with. God is not in the proper place within your life, and you have to conquer that. You can't conquer that. In fact, you need Jesus to be there in order for you to overcome the repetition of your sexual sin and that's true for any form of bondage whether it's sexual whether it's drugs, whether it's alcohol whether it's greed whether, whatever it is, you will not overcome it until God is in his proper place in your life. Idolatry always results in wrong living every time and so what does the woman do? Well, during the end times, the false prophet teams up with the Antichrist to deceive the nations. But right now, this false religious system, you have to understand that the woman is enticing. She says, you can be your own God. You can have life without submitting to God. You can save yourself. In fact, within New Age belief, there's actually nothing to save yourself from. You're fine the way that you are. Guilt is a negative emotion. You shouldn't experience it. Instead, God has put guilt on us so that we could understand our brokenness and our need of a savior. This is a wrong view. She's enticing, though, because wouldn't it be better to think you're just fine? Wouldn't it be better to think that you can do whatever you want? She's enticing. She's enticing. She's intoxicating, numbing, God, or numbing people to God's presence and creating dependency. You have to understand that everything that a false religion offers you is something that will cause you to be dependent upon it. It will intoxicate you and you will become dependent upon it. You will be drunk with it. You will need it over and over again in order to feel like you're fine, knowing all the while that it's destroying you. She's sensual, leading people to indulge their passions without restraint. Isn't that the culture we live in? A sensual culture that says, do whatever you want. Whatever your passions are, go for it without restraint. Her sexual immorality is always paired with idolatry, which is why the scripture called God's people to abstain from sexual sin as it leads to satanic bondage in a person's life. The other thing it says about the woman is she is the source of everything detestable, these abominations, these impurities. Now, the the thing that the scriptures tell us about that which turned God's stomach and that which is unclean, it says, come out from among them and be separate. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe in the Lord and you've trusted in him, there's this command that we're called to come out from among the peoples, the waters, and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch anything unclean. Peter quotes that in, in 2 Second Peter. Uh, Paul co- quotes it in Second Corinthians. It's from Isaiah chapter fifty two, verse eleven. Come out from among them and be separate. And so, what we understand as Christians is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we should be separate. We should be different. The KJV says peculiar. We shouldn't be like the waters. The waters, on your hand out there, the waters are all of unsaved humanity who are deceived by the woman, the false religious system, reject the lamb, and participate in satanic rebellion, whether they know it or not, and receive judgment. Jesus says that's the wide path. That's where most people go in Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who will go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to life and few will find it. If you're here this morning, you're finding it. Jesus is that narrow road. The narrow the narrow road is you've been saved all of his grace. You've been rescued by him. You've been loved and cared for. He's been compassionate towards you. He's been merciful towards you. He's withheld the punishment that you deserve and he poured it out on his son so that you could be forgiven. This is the narrow road. Do you want to walk it? Will you trust him? If you're walking, at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7, says, "Be on your guard against false prophet, who come in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravaging wolves." He says, "Look out for the false religious system. It's going to happen. It's going to be all around you. There're going to be those that tell you you don't need Jesus. There's going to be those that tell you that, that God's version of ethics is the not, not the right version. You're going to hear it over and over again. And so if you and I as Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, how should we demonstrate that we live a different path? What should that look like? Well, we should know what idolatry is. and Not practice it, but repent of it. We should know that anything, we could make anything a substitute for God. There's so many places where we do this. You can make anything a substitute for God. You can make sports a substitute for God. You could make your personal achievement a substitute for God. You could make the baby you're holding a substitute for God. You could make wonderful things a substitute for God, but they're not And so we have to watch out that we don't do this, that we don't put something or someone in God's place. And and so we don't practice it, but we repent from it. We say, God, show this to me. If there's anything in me where I have idolatry in my life, where I put something above you, I want you to show it to me so that I can change my mind, I can think right about you and about this thing so that I can live a life that is upright. So idolatry is not practiced, but repented from. Listen to me, church. We know what sexual perversion is. It's not a complicated subject within the Bible. And we don't condone it, but we do offer the power to overcome it. Understand this. Our culture says go for it. The scriptures say no. We do not condone this. But let me tell you that that bondage that you have to sexual sin, Jesus would free you from it so that you can overcome it. We don't tell people go for it. We say there's an issue You know it's an issue. We don't condone this. We overcome it. We live in a world of materialism. We know what wealth is, and it's not found in our money and our possessions. So we use our money, our possessions, our time, our talent. We use those for heavenly gain. I take what God has given me, material possessions, money, time, gifts, abilities, and I look at those things and I say they're not for me, they're for heavenly gain. They're to be used to bless other people and bring them into a relationship with God so that Jesus' kingdom can be furthered on this earth. That is why I have wealth. That is what God gives me money for. That's why I have time on this earth. That is the talent that he has given me. It's to be leveraged, used for heavenly gain. We as Christians, we love our country, but we don't deify it. We love our country, so we pray for our country. We practice righteousness within our country, country, and we point our country to Jesus. We pray for our leaders. We practice righteousness in our individual lives, and we point our leaders to Jesus. I have a citizenship here, but my citizenship is in heaven. As Christians, we know failure. If you don't, you're lying to yourself. We know failure, so without hypocrisy, we confess our sins and move away from them. I'm not perfect. You aren't either, and neither is anybody you've ever met. And so we recognize that there are areas where we stumble. There's areas where we fall. There's areas where we make bad decisions, And without hypocrisy, we confess those for what they are. We agree with God that they're sin, and we move away from them seeking relationship with him. Did you know that when you came into relationship with Jesus, there was no promise that you wouldn't experience pain? We experience pain. And so we live compassionate lives of healing found in Jesus. I've experienced pain. You you might be right now. The people that are in your life and in your workplace and around you and your neighborhood, they might be experiencing pain right now. It might be a result of their own decisions. But you know what? I've experienced pain as a result of my decisions too. And so I don't live in a place of judgment, but I live in a place of compassion. You and I as Christians, we know the truth, the absolute truth about what is right and best and good. The absolute truth about who God is and who we are as human beings. The absolute truth about how to be saved and redeemed through the blood of Jesus on the cross. How to be made new through his resurrection. We have absolute truth about morality and ethics. We, we know these things. But we're not a hammer with them. They're offered with grace and understanding. You see, because we as Christians, we know, uh, we know Jesus And that there's no life apart from him. So we seek his face and his kingdom in our lives. If you do that, as a Christian, you'll be different. You'll be set apart. You'll be peculiar. Unwilling to just fit in with the crowd. And I think as we get older, you know, I I don't really worry too much about fitting in with the crowd anymore. But when I was in high school, I did. And so maybe you need to hear this as a middle school student, as a high school student. You don't need to fit in. You can be peculiar. You can stand out. You can follow Jesus and live a different way. You can say no to what's on the telephone your friend's trying to show you. You can lead people in paths of righteousness. You can be salt and light. You don't have to give in. But if you do that, you just have to understand, if you do these things, we are going to be at odds with the world and the power behind it. You'll be at odds with the Scarlet Beast. And so the Scarlet Beast, this is the the Antichrist and his world government, which is upheld by a false religious system. He uses the woman, the seven heads, and the ten horns, and the waters to deceive and destroy and make war against God speaking about the end times in particular, a political figure that received power from all of the nations. He uses a false religious system and and the power of all the nations to deceive the people, destroy the people, and make war against God. His goal is to slander the name and character of God and lead people to trust him instead. That's the goal of religious systems or political systems that don't honor God. I don't care what nation it is. A political system that doesn't honor God, it will slander his name and his character. Maybe not directly, maybe not in an overt way, but he'll do it. Those systems will work in that way. They will slander the name and the character of God, leading people to trust in the political system rather than God. This is why you should never, ever, ever, ever make a political leader the number one voice in your life. The scarlet beast or the antichrist in the end times, he deceives the nations through supernatural means. That's that line where it says that he was, is not, and is to come. In Revelation 13.3, it says that he is killed and then apparently resurrected. And so that's kind of what's going on here. He has supernatural power that comes directly from Satan, which should warn us not to seek after signs and supernatural experiences in life. This is something that Just because you have a religious experience doesn't mean it's from God. Just because you have a warming sensation or uh, a supernatural uh, thing happen in your life, that doesn't mean it's from God. There are other supernatural powers out there that would use supernatural means to deceive you and lead you away from God. And so we don't seek supernatural experiences or signs. It's okay if you have one and it meshes up with who God is and it aligns with the scriptures. That's fine. And if God chooses to give you that, it's wonderful. But hopefully you didn't come here this morning hoping your spine would tingle. But hopefully you came here this morning seeking the face of God. And if in seeking his face, you have a sensation, that's wonderful. But it's not the guarantee. So that's what the scarlet beast would do. He would lead people away. The seven heads are seven imposing and strong world leaders or nations during the end times. Uh, And what I'll say about these is many attempts have been uh, made to identify the seven nations. You get some clues from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, some clues from Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. But the the passage here doesn't name them, and I'm not going to try either. Um, We could take a shot at it, but frankly, it's not super clear. Okay? And what these nations do is, these leaders, is they're going to uplift the Antichrist. Same thing that the Ten Horns do. These rulers join together supporting the Antichrist. Um, what the text seems to indicate here is this happens in quick succession during the end times, and what they do is they say, let's all band together and support this one political leader so that we could follow him. And what they do, and, and, and what happens after they do that is they, they war against each other first, breaking down the false religious system. And then they come together and they make battle against Jesus. And what what I want to draw out in worldly religion, religion that says that you work your way to God and then he'll owe you. um, And that's every religion you can think of. Uh, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, the cults of the, of the, that sprung up in the United States, they all say, work your way to God and he'll owe you. Righteousness is earned rather than given. And what happens when those religions fail is its followers turn on it with cruel hatred. Now the thing that we know about the church is this idea that isn't based upon God's grace, but it's based upon our effort, it's made its way into our churches. You can, you, can, you can slip up yourself, read a text wrong, and go, this sounds like I need to work so that God will be happy with me. Have you ever met an angry, de-churched person? Somebody that went to church, uh, maybe for a long period of their life, You know what I've never heard one of them say? I've never heard one of them say, Jesus let me down. I've never heard one of them say, I had a a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. I was saved by his blood. I was made new through his resurrection. I, I, I sought him in the word. I prayed to him daily and he let me down. I've never heard anyone say that. I've met plenty of people who say something like, I left the church because someone hurt me and I can't trust Christians anymore. The issue is not Jesus, but man-made rules and actions that don't work. And so I implore us as a body of believers, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. You can find faults with me, you probably already did this morning. Um, I watched the Christmas video, if you guys got a chance to watch that, really great video, the first thing I did, I was like, that guy looks tired and fat. You know, there's, there's things that you can find. Um, maybe I'm hypercritical of myself. But there, I have, I, if you get your eyes fixed on me, I will let you down. If you get your eyes fixed on leadership, if you get your eyes fixed on other people within the church, they're not going to... What you do when you do that, you could do this in your marriage, and I'm stealing somebody else's line, but you could put the crushing weight of deity on your spouse. Say, live up to everything that I need so that I can be fulfilled. You put that on any person and they will fall short. But if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, if you don't let this false religion sneak in and say, it's about what I can do, about what you can do, and let's see who did it better, you can keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You'll know life, you know fulfillment. You'll know peace. But this false religion And the political system, they turn on each other. And what the scriptures reveal here is this is done according to God's plan. This is actually God's plan that in the end times, a political system will destroy a religious system, um, and lead people to war against Him. And so you have the Lamb, those who are with the Lamb, and God Himself. That is the clear division in this passage and within the Book of Revelation. You have. You have God, the Lamb, and his people against Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, ungodly world leaders, and the sea of unsaved humanity. And the question that the book of Revelation makes you ask is whose side am I on? Am I with God and the Lamb, or have I pitted myself against him on this other side? There's not some middle ground. The scripture, you're in one place or the other, and it makes you ask this question, whose side Am I on? We see that this is God's plan. Um, that he has chosen and called a faithful group of people and he then works with them against the satanic rebellion. And, and this comes up a couple of times within the book of Revelation or if you were to read other of John's writings where, uh, where God is calling people. He is choosing people and they are, they are faithful. And theologians have tried over and over again to say, which, which one is it? Is God sovereign or is man responsible? And, and no theologian has be, been able to fully explain the mystery of how God's elective providence can be reconciled with the responsibility of man. But you can be sure both exist. God is sovereign and in his providence, he is calling and choosing people and humanity has a choice to respond or not. What we can be sure about within this is that salvation comes from God according to his gracious plan seen in fulfillment through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where salvation originates, in God. Not in me, not in you, not in anybody else. Salvation finds its source in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is God's action towards us. We can also be sure that God offers an invitation to whoever is thirsty to take freely of the gift of the water of life. That's Revelation twenty-two seventeen. Are you thirsty? Would you like a drink? It's bought and paid for. Not just right now, but forever. The water of life is bought and paid for. The water of life actually bought and paid for you. Jesus did that for us. And so we see both God's action to save and our response to his actions. And what I want to say to you is each person is really only in control of one of those. How are you responding to him? Do you you hear his voice? Do you know whose side you're on? Like stop pretending like there's some middle ground. You're either, you're either with God and saved through the blood of Jesus and made new through his resurrection or you're in a rebellion against him. You don't get to choose a third spot. You're one or the other. So where are you? As Christians, would you hear this? As followers of Jesus Christ, let's, let's, let's let God inspect us let's say God there's a false religious system that exists around me that says I can work my way to you and earn something from you so that you owe me if you see that in me will you call it out right now father there's a there's a false religious system that leads me to believe that I can know truth without knowing you that I can have life without having you that I could be fulfilled without having you. There's a false religion system that says, God, we want what you have, but not you. If that exists in me, will you call it out? I want to confess it for what it is. I want to agree that this is wrong. And then through Jesus's blood, I know that I'm forgiven and I'm going to repent from that way of thinking and live in a new way, God. God, would you give me eyes to see what's happening in the world around me? Would you give me eyes to see what's happening in my children's lives, the deception that's creeping into them through their, through their friends and through their school and through their phones and through the TV? Would you give me eyes to see the deception that's creeping into their lives so that I can show them that this is false, this is wrong, and, and knowing you is what's true? God, would you give me eyes to do that with my neighbors? Would you give me eyes to do that with my family? Would you give me eyes to do that with my coworkers? Would you show me this, God? And if you're not a believer, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, listen to me. You are at odds with God. That's a bad place to be. At odds with your father, at odds with your creator. What the book of Revelation reveals is the final judgment for those who are at odds with God. (laughs) Let me just say, I'd rather you weren't there. I'd really rather you weren't there. And so I I beg of you on behalf of Jesus to be reconciled to God. To hear that he loves you. to, To hear that he cares for you to understand he knows your brokenness and your pain, uh, that, that he suffered on your behalf so that you could be forgiven of your sins. Will you look at Jesus on the cross and trust that his death saves you? Will you believe that three days later he rose from the dead to prove he was God and give you new life? Would you do that? He's calling you into his family. He's inviting you into relationship. Would you trust him? me pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one that we can trust. Throughout all the ages and seasons and different things that this world has seen, you are steadfast. You are true. You are life. You are the water that we thirst for, the bread that we hunger for, the shepherd that would lead us to life. You are the resurrection and the life. You are the one true Son of God. You are the Messiah who saved us from our sins. And so in the sea of things that could distract us, political leaders, false religious teachings, the way of our friends and family that don't know you, would you help us keep our eyes fixed on you? We praise you in Jesus' name.